ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. And it's time for our talking point. Now, talking point this morning is silent movies. Between the late 1890s and when sound arrived in 1929, more than 10,000 silent films were made in the United States and plenty more around the world, especially in Australia. We were one of the leading film countries in those days. But these days, more than 100 years later, only about 14% of those films survive. Is it too late to find these lost classics? Australia launched what they called or what we called the last film search in the 1970s. And we're now 50 years on from that. So maybe time has run out and the final credits have rolled for these movies. Or is it not too late after all? Tracy Gossel is president of the Film Preservation Society in Los Angeles and is our guest on Overnights this morning. Tracy, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Rod. How are you doing? Well, we're doing okay, although, you know, I love silent movies, or that we call them silent movies. Not really silent, are they? We just can't hear the voices of the actors. Well, silent movies were always accompanied by music. And uh, so what you're seeing and hearing is an image and music, but not um, spoken words. And believe it or not, some of the best modern movies still have large sections where they're doing just that. I can I can show you huge chunks of um, Saving Private Ryan, a Steven Spielberg uh, film, that were done entirely with, you know, no words, but just music and image. And um, it, those tended to be the strongest, most moving parts of the films. Exactly. So you're searching for films in LA or all over America. Why is it important? Why is it imperative to find these movies? Well, for one reason is that they don't have much time left to survive. Um, They were filmed on nitrate stock and nitrate won't wait is a, a platitude that all film restoration people use, but it's tremendously true. Literally the films turn to dust. They start to bubble Um, sometimes they just catch fire and are gone. All of the Fox studio silent films are lost because of a fire in the mid-1930s in a vault. And even within the last, I think, 10 years, Universal lost a lot of material. Fortunately, they had it backed up with a uh, vault fire. And so, um, you know, the clock is ticking, and it's not a matter of just finding them. In fact, People have found them. It's a matter of finding people willing to invest the money to preserve them, to yeah. to scan them, to preserve the image as it exists, and then work digitally um, with the, cleaning it up and stabilizing it, making it look like it looked when it first came out. And then if you really are lucky and have money, returning it back to 35 millimeters so it can survive another 5,000 years on safety stock. What evidence do we have? You say that these films still exist or that some of them do. We mentioned 14% of the 10,000 or more than, or nearly 10,000 uh, films or more than 10,000 films made at that time still exist. Uh, you say that they 
some of them you do have or they do exist and it's just they need to be digitised. Um, how many do we right. know? Or what kind of films are we talking about? Well, we're talking about amazingly uh, popular, not you know obscure, rare little films, but uh, we're working right now with Paramount on a couple of Clara Bow films. And one of them was directed by Dorothy Arsner, who was a very famous early um, fe- early female uh, director. And two reels of that have totally turned to jelly and uh, lar- big chunks of uh, what remain are in rough shape, but are salvageable. And some other parts, it's just like you're looking through a snowstorm. So um, the 14% quote that you come from, uh, that you're quoting is from a very famous study done a few years back by David Pierce, who's um, one of the top people at the uh, Packard Center at the Library of Congress, where he went to every archive and registered and logged what they had and what they didn't have just sitting there in their vaults. And um, that is where the figure came from of of what survives. But our little organization is um, working on something called the Biograph Project, where we're trying to preserve the films that were made by the Biograph Studio between 1908 and 1913, because that's when D.W. Griffith was there. And basically that is where and when the language of cinema was created. Now that's an oversimplification, but essentially if you look at a 1908 biograph, it's like you're filming a stage play. If you look at a 1913 biograph, it's it's it appears the same except for the absence of sound as any modern TV right. show or movie. All of the mechanisms of cutting back and forth, close-ups, camera moving along with the action, etc. That whole language was created um, in that five-year period. And that's when so, he's making Birth of a Nation and films like that. Yeah, then he went on to make Birth of a Nation and thus his, you know, he's, he's radioactive today yeah. because he was Southerner after the Civil War and he's horribly out of vogue. Uh, but between 1908 and 1913, he was making films where uh, the Native Americans were the heroes. Often the African-American character was the hero. They were very progressive. They were uh, talking about issues that that related to urban life as well as rural life at that time. And um, so if you judge somebody by the entirety of their body of work, you sure. might get a different picture of D.W. Griffith yeah. than simply by the film he made that was based on um, uh, yeah. pretty racist books sure. written by a guy okay. by the name of Reverend Dixon. All right. So, But what you're saying but also, anyway, can I just say, though, that what you're saying is that these yeah. are priceless records of what you know, America or LA or, or other parts of the country and other parts of the world for that matter looked like at that time that you have film footage yes. of, you know, everyday life as well as the, the films that are made that were, you know, designed to be shown in movie theatres and, and told stories that you actually can see what the world looked like. Yes, they are a window into the past. And, um you know, you were asking about percentage and volume and how do you find what's lost. What's amazing is with the biographs, um, the majority, but not 100% of them, exist 
at the Museum of Modern Art, but the Museum of Modern Art is still missing material. And um, we found a number of reels by just going to a guy's storage unit up in the San Fernando Valley, where he had hundreds and hundreds of reels of film, not air conditioned, not being preserved um, in a temperature controlled manner. I'm just waiting for that darn thing to blow up. Mm. But he was able to hand over seven reels of biographs to us that nobody else ever had. So there are still films out there that we can use to, it's like a great big puzzle to fill in the missing pieces. But for the most part, that which has survived is already sitting underground in an archive, but nobody is preserving it. Right. So it's sort of just frozen time. I want to ask about that. Tracy Gossel is a guest as we're talking about film preservation. Let's say you get, uh, you know, like some seven reels, as you say, from this bloke who had them in a, you know, huh? storage facility. What do? What's the ideal way then of preserving it? Because you have to, you know, unravel it and, you know, it could fall apart in your hands um, and then you actually mm-hmm. have to have, um, a, you know, a projector or whatever it is to put it through so that you can film it or digitise it or do you do it frame by frame? What's the actual process? It depends upon what the original material is and there are two different processes that different there's like opposite camps. Uh, half of the archivists, preservationists, everything has to be photochemical, where you simply create a new negative from that positive by putting the strips of film together and shining the light through them. Um, the uh, other method, which is the one that we use, is digital, where we scan frame by frame the existing material. Um, But if you were simply just to recreate it photochemically, the film often shrinks over the decades and is unstable. And what you would get, you you just wouldn't be able to look at. If you scan it, then digitally work to stabilize the image and to clean up all the scratches and bubbles, because there could be a big scratch on one frame, but the frame before and the frame after are intact, um, you can simply overwrite where the the scratch was and can make it look almost as good as the day uh, it came out of Billy Bitzer's camera. So um, we we are doing, and much of the uh, restoration world is moving more towards digital restoration because we're able to do so much. Then if we really have the luxury of money, when you finally create that wonderful product at the end, then you can return it to 35 millimeter where it will be stable and last. Whereas digital, the digital files will maybe last a hundred years, which is a scary thing when you think of modern films being filmed digitally. Um, We might, you know, imagine being without Casablanca. Even though it's a talkie, I have strong affection (laughs) for it. Um, you know, I, uh, let me ask about that. Can I so just ask about that? The fact that these are so-called <laughs> silent films, does that actually make it easier mm-hmm. to help preserve them? Because you don't have to find the sound reel. You just are looking for the picture reel. And so, therefore, you know, that's fine. You can then make up the music, any music you like, to go with the movie uh, if you want to. You could just get someone to compose the, the music. 
we don't know what the music mm-hmm. was that went. Quite often it was made up as it went along by someone playing a piano in a movie theatre. But you don't need to worry about finding the sound part of it. You're just finding the picture. That makes it easy, doesn't it? it? That takes away one challenge and one element, not having to worry about an audio track. Although um, many of the major feature films had scores composed for them. And often those scores are registered with the Library of Congress and you can play the original, you know, I don't know Mortimer Wilson score, whatever it was that went with the Black Pirate or the Thief of Baghdad. Um, or you can, as you suggest, get a modern composer. Uh, and Carl Davis was sort of the most famous of them. Mm-hmm. He died within the past year yeah. to write a new score for a film. But the silent films are in many ways harder just because there have been more years since they were made. And um, they were, once sound came in, they were viewed as worthless, just melt the film down from the silver and um, move on. And so studios did not prize this portion of their history very quickly. It became sort of a gag. People would, would, um, make little comedy reels called flicker flashbacks and they would run the film fast and make it look corny and silly. Um, When in fact, silent films were really um, beautiful in the earliest years, you have to get used to the fact that people were not yet acting for the camera. They were performing as if they were on a stage and the stage uh, back 120 years ago had its own, um, language of arms and um, legs and facial expressions that was a much broader pantomime because you were playing not just for the people in the front row but for the people way in the back before yeah. they were microphones. Um, so you're seeing a very theatrical style in the absolute earliest silent films, which is easy to make fun of. But um, one thing that Griffith did um, along with artists who were working for him, such as Mary Pickford, was to um, create a, a style of acting that is survives today, which is simply an intimate, realistic style that works with a camera being very close to the actor. Yeah. So um, it's, it's the fact that people did not cherish them once sound did become ubiquitous um, makes silent films harder to find and restore but once you have them yes Mm. you don't have the challenge of having to also line up and clean up a soundtrack so you're looking at the biograph film company from that particular time 1908 Mm. 1913 around about that time are there other people Mm. who are dedicated or who dedicate themselves to the films of other studios from that time and are searching for them and uh, are restoring them for the most part, no. Um, most of the organizations that do this are um, archives, uh, national archives or um, public institutions. And so they have a much broader um, range of things that they work on and look to save. And um, there are private individuals like um, David Sten, for example, who wrote a very uh, good, very um admired biography of Clara Bow, whenever some Clara Bow material is found, this is a guy who's first in line to provide funding and to help 
um, get get the films saved and out there. So there are certain people, I, for example, wrote a biography on Douglas Fairbanks Sr. And some of his films had been, matter of fact, most of his 1919 films had been just permitted to turn to dust um, by the Museum of Modern Art that had them, but didn't bother to preserve them. But um, I was, in order to write his biography, I actually needed to see every one of his surviving films. And in a couple of instances, I funded the restoration of them so that I could see them. And um, uh, so I'm sort of the Doug Fairbanks person. But for the most part, uh, except for we few eccentrics, um, Mm. it, it is institutions who are not focused on a particular studio or a particular um, producer or star, but are just trying to save what what they can find. Take us back to that time when film really Mm -hmm. came in. We know, you know, that uh, the first, you know, we're very proud of this in Australia, the first feature film was made in Australia, The Story of the Kelly Gang in 1906. That's what we say, and I'm sure... There are, maybe there are other people around the world that claimed that they made the first you know, modern feature film. Um, but what was the industry like? Who was making these films? And, you know, was it easy to make? They seem to be, you know, as you say, there are thousands of these films being made. Were they just being churned out? And, um, you know, where were they being screened? Were there purpose-built cinemas? When did that come along? And just take us back to, you know, those years perhaps before World War One between the, the turn of the century and World War One, and that was kind of this golden age of this silent film, the early silent films. What was the industry like? Well, let's start with the 1890s, when film was not something that was projected, but moving pictures were viewed by people in machines in arcades, where each, each um, cardboard picture was on kind of a big flippy roll, and you would crank turn the crank and then the thing would move just like a flip book today, a children's flip book. And then um, around the turn of the century, they figured out how to um, create the celluloid that you could shine the light through. And so you could then project a film on a, on a wall or a sheet and multiple people could see the film at the same time. And the real groundbreaking event was late in 1903, when the Edison studio made a film called The Great Train Robbery, which is less than a real. This is a very short film, but it was a phenomenon because it told a story. Before that, most films had been what we call actualities. You would pay your nickel and you would get to see some part of the world you've never seen before, or quite dreadfully, an elephant being electrocuted. Um, or, you know, a, a, a criminal being, a, a boxing match. That was huge. People would want to see film of boxing matches. But they were films of, of real things, um, documenting actualities. But The Great Train Robbery was a narrative tale. And um, with, the, with the rise of, and fame of this little film, there became um, a phenomenon known as Nickelodeons. People would buy or rent a storefront, kind of hollow it out so it could be a theater and would charge a nickel and people could come in and see four or five reels. Um, It was never a continuous story. It was separate 
uh, 11 minute reels or split reels of comedies and dramas, um, slideshows, sing-alongs, those sorts of things. Then um, once you get to the uh, period between 1908 and 1913, where Griffith is is making all of his his cinematic uh, creative discoveries, and then everybody else in the industry starts copying him, um, there were little studios like Edison, uh, Vitagraph, um, Biograph, uh, Calum, all these early primitive studios, and they wouldn't rent their films out. They would sell them to exchanges. So if you made a movie, maybe you would sell 25 prints and you'd sell them to the exchanges and that was it. Then the exchanges rented the films out uh, to the various theaters and, and basically would run them until they were beat up and and uh, unshowable. And then when Griffith um, left Biograph, because they wouldn't, they didn't want him to make multi-reel films, and he had pushed the most he could do out of a single reel, he then moved on and ultimately made The Birth of a Nation, which aired in January of 1915. So between 13 and 15, suddenly we get the blooming of feature films, that movies could be longer, an audience would yeah. sit still for a five-reel story. So what we've, yeah, I was going to say, what we've got here, though, is about a, a 12-year period when these films uh, you know, are everywhere from 1915 with Birth of a Nation and the, you know, obviously hugely um, uh, important and influential film there. And then The Jazz Singer comes along 927. It's really not very long. It's, it, you didn't like The Jazz no, Singer? No. <laughs> People worry about the racism in Birth of a Nation. The racism in The Jazz Singer is pretty bad too. But it, it's. Oh, fact, yes. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you the, know, you can't blame. Uh, uh, silent films for the racism because believe me it persists so you see step and fetch it movies and even into the 40s you know mickey rooney and judy garland um, oh, mickey rooney in, in um breakfast at tiffany's is about one of the worst things oh, you'll God. ever see yes yeah it's oh yeah and of course it was fashionable to be racist against the japanese because it was only 15 years after world war ii but still but that's regardless we 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 have to look at our past. We can't whitewash it. Um, we can wince. We can point to it. We can learn from it. Um, but we shouldn't pretend it didn't happen. Um, we, we shouldn't self-censor our past. And that's why I think um, you just have to, it's living history. It's living, breathing history, how people acted, how people thought. And um, you need to preserve it, if only for a cautionary tale in some instances. And in others, it really does show us that there were people who were progressive thinkers yes. and um, moving along the right path even then. But uh, yeah, there was never before in history um, has there been a development of a whole new art form that rises from nothing, it blooms, it reaches a peak, and then it's gone. Mm. And uh, talking films are not just silent films with sound. It really is a different thing. Um, now I'm speaking as a physician. You process an image with music in a different part of your brain than you processed words. 
And so the experience of watching a silent film and feeling that emotion, and um, it just is a different thing. And it's something that if you are in the right uh, setting where you're seeing it as it should have been seen with live music um, or an appropriate musical score in your home if you're watching it on, on home video, it really can be a transcendent experience. And it is a shame that it became so immediately de devalued that much of it mm. is is lost. But Dr. more and more okay. is being found. Okay, Tracy Gossel is our guest as we're talking about silent films. And you talked about the demise of them, 1927 and almost overnight silent films uh, are, are quite literally a thing of the past, even though that past was only a, you know a week or two earlier. That once the jazz singer was a hit, then no one wanted to make silent films. Or were they like? W was every film suddenly a, a a talkie, as they call them those days? Because then you can jump ahead about twenty odd years and see films like Sunset Boulevard and also Singing in the Rain, which were about the silent era. Certainly Singing in the Rain was about that transition from silence to talkies, and there was a kind of a nostalgia for them at that point, 20 or so years on. But did people keep making um, silent films into the 1930s? Well, yes and no. Um, first of all, it took a couple of years to wire all the theatres for sound, so they would often have both silent and talky versions of a film. Uh, also, depending upon the country, in China, for example, they they were making silent films into the mid-30s. Um, so you would see a film with an art deco, very modern setting. It looks like, you know, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers should be there, but it's still a silent film. In the United States, once that two-year period happened when everybody kind of got converted and uh, to sound and there were only sound versions of films being made, Charlie Chaplin uh, very doggedly and stubbornly yes. uh, kept on making silent films. Uh, he made City Lights. He made uh, Modern Times. They had soundtracks with his music and sometimes some special, you know, like if his character had swallowed a whistle, you know, the, the, yep. the whistle sound would be on the soundtrack to comic effect. But Chaplin felt that his uh, little tramp was never meant for sound. And he was right. Um, even geniuses like Buster Keaton, who you would, oh, they're brilliant, brilliant uh, filmmakers. Mm. In sound, it's different. It just, there's a heaviness to the slapstick. It doesn't... Um, it loses some magic. So, yeah. Um, well, I'll yeah, say that the, Buster the Keaton made the stuff. greatest comedy of all time, which is The General. That's a silent film. And, yes. you know, that was 1926, yep. and that has not been bettered in the last 98 years. Uh, we've seen silent oh, films yeah, in, in recent years. The Artist sort of came out of nowhere and mm -hmm. won the Oscar for Best Picture and Best Actor, Best Director as well. That was you know, a so-called silent film. And again, it was about the Hollywood at the time. They weren't trying to make a modern film. It seems like it's safe if they make a movie set in those times. Yes, and it was a marvellous film. They they only made one mistake um, 
in my mind, in terms of replicating the silent era, we were supposed to believe our hero was going to shoot himself. And then there's a bang sound and we yeah. see it's, he's not had shot himself. He's instead um, a, a car, car has crash. struck yeah. a tree. And there was a uh, intertitle that said bang. They never would have done that um, really? in the silent era. They just would have had a sound on the track and we would have cut to the the tree um the car hitting the tree and some people argued oh they were using modern 40s uh, swing music blah 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 i thought it was just about a perfect film yeah, um, i thought jean dujardin was brilliant and they uh those folks those filmmakers came to the academy of motion picture arts and sciences um late in the the 20 aughts uh to see a screening uh, some film had been found, had been kept in the New Zealand archives because New Zealand was often the last stop when yep. films were being shipped around the world. Um, sort of outer Mongolia, the Yukon, New Zealand <laughs> were places where the the uh, exchanges would say, don't send them back. You know, it's, it, it, by the time a film like The General would make its way to New Zealand, it would be two years after its premiere. And so a number of American silent films were uh, repatriated from New Zealand at that time. And the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences did a screening of a John Ford film, uh, the name of which I forget, I'm sorry, that was part of that repatriation. And the filmmakers who made the artist were there that night. And that was part of their inspiration. And they also were inspired, as was Gene Kelly, to create the character around uh, Douglas Fairbanks's persona yes. uh, from the 1920s, that swashbuckling hero, uh, Gene Kelly, very intentionally in Singing in the Rain, uh, has the silent film sequence at the beginning where he's in a Fairbanks costume and swashbuckling. Mm -hmm. And they did the same thing with Jean Dujardin, uh, put him in the Iron Mask costume. So um, okay. it, it all looks back and i think um I, I thought it was just a wonderful film i don't think we're going to see many more instances of it mel brooks made a film called yeah, silent Movie which wasn't in very the good 70s. rather yeah, obvious he tried. he tried yes there was of course only yeah. one uh, person in it with a spoken line and that was marcel marceau um we're talking about silent films exactly Let's go back to 1927 again <laughs> or in those years 27 28 29 you know, as the change uh -huh. is taking place. Are people throwing out these silent films thinking no one will ever be interested in seeing them again? Is that one of the problems? They were, yes, they were. Although uh, Film Preservation Society to this day gets contacted by people who say, I just bought this old 1906 projector and it has a reel of film in it. Where, what do I do? I usually uh, turf them to the Library of Congress because... If it's an early reel of film, it's probably nitrate. You just don't pop that in the mail. Yeah. Um, that that really can blow up sitting in a hot FedEx truck. Uh, so we we get the people directed um, and uh, get the film to the nearest archive that can look at it and save it and you know handle it safely. Recently. Um, a, the um, 
um, Rochester, New York, the George Eastman Museum was given a, a home projector and a hundred feet of film that came with it as a donation. And that hundred feet of film was from Douglas Fairbanks's The Three Musketeers. And it happened to be a segment where the um, they'd done a color process called the Hanschlagel process, a, a form of stenciling where Doug was riding as D'Artagnan, the buttercup yellow horse. And because of that hundred feet of film, we were able to know what the color tint was on Three Musketeers as a whole for the daytime scenes. And we were able to, to replicate the, um, that hand stenciling of the buttercup yellow horse. And so our um, Blu-ray of the Three Musketeers has those corrections in it because that hundred feet of film happened to be donated with the home projector. So um, by the way, we do sell uh, Blu-rays of our uh, restorations. <laughs> if anybody is interested, I'm sure they can go to www.filmpreservationsociety.org and then, you know, swim around in there and you'll see that we've got some Doug Fairbanks movies, some which were have not been seen for a hundred years or more. We've um, uh, saved Harpo Marx's first film appearance, mm. which was in a silent film. Uh, and uh, also um, other silent films yep. that, that uh, we restored along the way, some William S. Hart westerns, etc. Should they all be saved, by the way? Are they all yes. worth, there's some value in all of them? I would argue yes. Of course, um, resources are not infinite, so you have to um, strategize. I would save those that are most at risk of of deteriorating first, but I think it, we have a responsibility to our history to uh, try and preserve and save as much as we possibly can. Um, the Pickford Foundation. Mary Pickford, of course, was, um, along with Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks, the, the, the three great silent film stars of that era. And uh, she and Fairbanks were married, and they co-founded United Artists and uh, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Pickford Foundation isn't going to restore Pollyanna um, because the individuals there go, well, you know, she's playing a little girl and... Everybody always thinks of Mary Pickford playing a little girl, and we're going to try and save the ones where she's a waif and not a little girl. And my feeling is, wait a minute, this was her first film for United Artists. It's an iconic title, and um, you're the Pickford Foundation. You should be working to save everything that Mary Pickford made, uh, but they're not. And so we'll step in to the breach uh, all the Pickford performances on Biographs were, were preserving because she came to the Biograph studio in 1909 and left uh, off and on in 1912. So um, sometimes it's just a matter of who has the money and what their personal preferences. Right. But uh, from a historic archival um, sense, you know, sort of a responsible 
preservationist historian sense, I think we need to try and preserve as much as we possibly okay. can. Now, I've got some great news for you, Tracy, and that is that the Majestic Theatre in Pomona in Queensland, uh, which is near Gympie, um, a Factory Street, Pomona, uh-huh. they run silent movies every Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock. Today, they are running the 1928 Harold Lloyd movie Speedy. I'm not sure if you've seen that. It was oh, his, it's a wonderful film. It was his last silent film to be released theatrically. Uh, Harold Speedy Swift, some relation to Taylor Swift, I'm sure, a fan of Babe Ruth, the Ruth and the New York <laughs> Yankees, saves from extinction the city's last horse-drawn trolley operated by his girlfriend's grandfather. So um, doors and bar open at 11 a.m., it's $15 for adults, free for children, no need to book, get your tickets at the door. That's at the Majestic Theatre in Pomona. Now, um, on Sunday, they're actually running uh, Doris Day and Howard Keel's Calamity Jane. And then next uh, Saturday, well, the most famous Harold Lloyd movie, Safety Last, is the uh, film that they no, are screening. It's... Now, the Majestic Theatre is the longest running silent movie theatre in the world. How about that? Wow. Hmm. Wow. Continuous. The world's longest running silent film theatre. Well, uh, a long time ago, I'm guessing, um, and it's been on the heritage list for a long time. So, yeah, that's that's fantastic. So uh, all sorts of things. I've live music on other days as well. And it's one of the oldest theatres in Australia. So they're going to, you know, it's fantastic. So I I think they should be encouraged and we should uh, tell people more about it. We should actually get them on the program to get them talking about it as well. So that is at the Majestic Theatre in Pomona. Hmm. And they've got a 1937 Compton organ. But the fact that that um, Harold Lloyd film from 1928 you know, it was after the jazz singer mm-hmm. tells you that they obviously are still making silent movies after the jazz singer. Well, the jazz singer came out, I think, in October of 27. And so it it turned out to be a phenomenon that uh, even its makers weren't expecting. Uh, and so everybody had to debate and think about whether or not they wanted to go to the expense of of wiring their studios for sound and closing them in uh, from the light. And uh, just think of every single exhibitor suddenly having to invest the money to wire their theaters. Yes, because this could have been a fad as well. They didn't know whether it was going to last. That's right. Uh, to me, uh, talkies are just a fat, oh. uh, but <laughs> I apparently meant the minority. And <laughs> so uh, they're, they're those of us who still just love them to death and need to save them. And I know there are so many problems in the world that uh, you could argue, well, why aren't you dealing with, you know, a famine in Bangladesh or whatever. Mm. And, and the answer is each person can't do everything, exactly. but each of us can do our best in one particular area. And to us, I, I argue that the Biograph Project may be of interest only to 700 people, but 600 of them haven't been born yet. You know, some of them... <laughs> 
200 years from now are going to be very grateful exactly. that, that somebody back in the 2020s took the time to to save these things. Uh, I'll just tell you a little bit more about the mighty Majestic Theatre. Originally built as a social hall with uh, shops attached in 1921, it is the oldest authentic silent movie theatre in the world and the longest continuously operating movie theatre in Australia. It was extensively refurbished in 2006 and there you go. It's got a beautiful sprung floor and can be used for dances as well. So that's the Majestic Theatre in Pomona, in Queensland. Beautiful. If you want to go to a silent movie. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it, though? I mean, Safety Last is there. That's the sort of film that you would expect to see. You would see Charlie Chaplin. You would see Harold Lloyd. You would see Buster Keaton. You know, are there, a, you know, or you is there... You want to start people with comedy. Yeah, of course. But... Oops, I'm sorry. I interrupted you much. No, I was just going to say, is there a lot of, you know, movies to choose from? Uh, if they, you know, obviously they've been uh, yeah. continuously running them, but, you know, you may see the same things turn up again. Um, so, you know, are there a lot of silent movies that people can see? Yes, there are. And once a year in Pordenone, Italy, there's a week-plus-long festival that starts at 8 in the morning and goes to midnight. And it simply is all the archives bringing their restorations and discoveries. And um, I remember in 20, I think it was 2019, yeah, the last year before the pandemic, it was William S. Hart, Westerns. And so the people at Bologna brought the ones they had saved, the people at the Library of Congress, the people at the George Eastman Museum. It was just this wonderful string of William S. Hart Westerns. And you, you uh, got a feel for the work. Another year, they, they did John Stahl melodramas, and he's well known for um, his sort of women's pictures in the 30s at Universal, but uh, he also made a, a number of great films in the 20s that people, as a director, people didn't have access to. So you, there are lots to see. Um, mostly they sit in archives unviewed and untouched. And one of our missions is to get them out on Blu-ray so people can see them. Now, we we don't exactly make money doing that, but we lose money more slowly. Um, it, it's, we're a nonprofit. So um, we know that for the most part, a regular um, company like Kino or, or you think of whoever creates Blu-rays these days is only going to put out something that they can turn a profit on. And we, we get stuff out there because I think people want to see it. And we don't have to turn a profit. It's we're we're a nonprofit, but I think um, it's not just the people in the coasts, you know, New York, L.A., London, uh, Sydney, that should have the ability to see these things. I think somebody in the middle of Kansas who's interested yeah. in silent movies um, should see them. And in fact, I have mailed our Blu-rays to Australia to. Yeah, Japan, because they play in all the, the you know, they're the all district. Yes, all region, yeah. All region. All thing. right, now, i just um, interrupt and, you for a moment. Yeah. Uh, we'll take a call in a second. Just to point out that Pomona, 
sorry, it's not near Gympie, uh, but it's uh, west of Noosa Head. So uh, it's kind of north um, west of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, inland a little bit, very small town, but the, that's the town with the uh, movie theatre. Now, Rowan uh, is with us. Uh, good morning, Rowan. Good morning. You've got some silent movies. Yes, I've got a, probably 30, 35 silent movies from uh, 1899 is the earliest to about 19, late 1920s, I'd say. And do you know what they are? I know of a number of them. The, the better quality ones I've been able to run through a series of old silent uh, movie projectors I've been able to procure. Um, there are things like lions and tigers fighting, two two uh, locomotives running into each other, um, oh, wow. some Walt Disney's. Quite a quite a different uh, array of movies. Okay, and this. But I don't know what to do with them, really. Well, in Australia, you would contact oh. definitely contact the uh, National Film and Sound Archive. I've tried that. Not yes, interested. Please. Not interested. No luck. Not interested because they're not Australian. Oh, okay. Hmm. Curious. Oh. Um, okay. Tracy, any oh, thoughts? Dear. Okay. So these were in Singapore, Rowan. Yes, yes. He uh, he was a, a bit of an entrepreneur. Hang on, you're saying he made these movies himself, or are they professionally made films? 1899 is very, very early. They they are um, produced by other people like Walt Disney and various others. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure who who have done. Uh, uh, the some of them, but uh, quite a quite an odd selection of things. He he was also into making his own movies, but uh, that was at a later date. All right, Tracy, any thoughts on this? I mean, does Singapore have a national film register or something like that? I I know that uh, maybe Japan. Um, let me talk to the people at the Library of Congress, okay. and if you could gather this sure. gentleman's contact information, okay. Rod, sure will. and have your producer get it to me, yep. I will um, see what they what they think. Okay. They pro probably know the archive that would be closest, that would be willing to take it. In the meanwhile, please keep it stored in a cool, uh, dry environment yep. um, because that you just don't want it either to catch fire or to turn to dust sure and um okay. well we're just getting his, in there, there could be uh we're just getting rowan's details yeah. now we'll pass them on to you but please tell rowan cool dark place to uh, store those yes. uh, need something a little bit stable what was being made in 1899 actualities basically a uh, film of things happening. Oh, look, here's a train coming into the station. Right, Here right. are factory workers leaving the factory. And now, you know, seen through the eyes of, of a century plus later, we're fascinated just looking at the people in the station uh, at the, it, 
in when the film came out, people were thrilled to see a train coming towards them and moving. Um, imagine some 200 years from now, if we have a form of a holographic universe that you can step into and see a show and be part of it. Um, that's what it felt like to those people in the 1890s. They'd never seen a picture move uh, beyond a flip book. And um, it was just a stunning thing. So it took a while to get from uh, just showing things to having a narrative, um, that have the film have a, a tell a story, the yes. narration. And so A Day in the Life of an American Fireman in 1902 by the Edison studio was kind of technically the first, but again, it was the great train robbery was the real um, breakthrough in narrative storytelling in, a, in yeah. for American silent film, at least. Yes, of course. Story of the Kelly Gang in Australia, very important. Yeah. Uh, Soldiers of the Cross yeah. was another one. It wasn't yeah. exactly a movie, but I think that even uh, predated the turn of the century. So if people do have these films, what should they be doing? Well, they can contact us through uh, filmpreservationsociety.org. Tell us what they have. Uh, you know, if somebody has some old 8mm film, believe me, that's you know, that's struck from 35 somewhere and that's commercial and that represents a film that's already uh, been preserved. But if you have 35 millimeter and uh, it's original nitrate, we will figure out through with the guidance of the people at uh, the U.S. Library of Congress where the nearest, most appropriate archive is for you to contact. And I'm grieved that... Um, uh, your National Archive didn't want to take that film just to save it uh, mm. because you can expatriate it to the country of origin. But at first, you've got to get it out of somebody's garage. Also, just for the safety of the owner, I, you exactly. don't want nitrate film sitting around. Sure. So uh, a little bit more about that, and we thank Laurie for her suggestion here that um, – what have we got um, – the Oz Silent Film Festival dot com dot au. That's OZ Silent Film Festival dot com dot au. They screen them as well, including today, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, the nineteen twenty restored silent classic, uh, black and white and colour tinted, and that is being screened today in Sydney at the Roseville Uniting Church and Lord Street in Roseville, in uh, New South Wales. And um, they're, they're also uh, showing Clash of the Wolves from 1925, Peter Pan, 1924, The General, 1926, and The Last of the Mohicans, the 1920 version of that. That's over the next, uh, that's once a month or so. They also run them in the Epping Baptist Church, uh, Richmond as well. So just have a look at ozsilentfilmfestival.com.au and they run silent films at the State Library of New South Wales and I'm sure in other parts of the country as well. So plenty of opportunity to see silent films. You've just got to, you know, look around, don't you? 
Clash of the Wolves is the one surviving Rinton Tin feature, and it is fabulous. If you've got kids, take them to see that movie. Uh, there was a reason Rinton Tin was more popular uh, at Warner's in the 20s than John Barrymore. I mean, he really, yes. he was a remarkably good actor. Um, and With an amazing it's, backstory it's as well, you know, and how the yes. Rin Tin Tin of today is a direct descendant from Rin Tin Tin rescued during World War One. What about the 1920 version of The Last of the Mohicans? Fabulous. Maurice Turner, Lon Chaney's in it. It's a, every single one of the films that they listed that they have coming up is the sort of classic that you you would want people seeing. Um, if you're just trying to introduce somebody to silent films, I generally start with Charlie Chaplin in The Kid, because um, that will not only make them laugh, it'll make them cry. And if you um, can start with the comedies and get people used to the fact that they're black and white or tinted and the fact that, you know, people are, are wearing makeup that's more exaggerated than we're used to today also the standards of feminine beauty were different yes. and the nowadays women are considered beautiful if they have large mouths so you, you'll <laughs> see more distressed ladies just injecting all this nonsense into their mouths so they look like pufferfish but um in the 20s the standard of beauty was your mouth had to be smaller than your eye so everybody is painting their their little be stung lips on um and it just it's it's a different standard of beauty so the the heroine in a movie will often yeah. look like she today would be cast as the uh the plucky best friend of the heroine but um okay uh, uh, i'll just say i will adjust yeah well just one other thing and that is on march the 3rd at the state library of new south wales the black pirate that's one you mentioned earlier. <gasps> Yes, and it's there's a new restoration we're trying to get out there. What they'll be showing is the 1970 version that's been the only version that's been okay. around for years, meaning it was reconstructed in 1970 from the B camera negative, but a brand new restoration from the A camera negative has been um, okay. Uh, it's, it's available at MoMA, and we're going to try and get it released. Brilliant. Now, I have to excuse myself. We have to leave as well. Tracy, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much. Continue your great work, and I hope we get the chance to talk again. Thank you, Rod. I appreciate being uh, being asked to, to share with your folks. That's great. Tracy Gossel from uh, Film Preservation Society, and thanks so much to Laurie for telling us all about the uh, uh, film festivals in Australia as well. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.